Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. I'm Dana Zook. And Josh Bashan. Continuing from our two-part episode on one producer's horrible situation with BVD, Dana, we brought in an expert this time, and I'd like you to introduce our expert and kind of give us an idea of what we're going to talk about today. Barry Whitworth is with us. He is the you're, he's our livestock veterinarian. He's from the Southeast, from Southeast Oklahoma, kind of covers really very, you cover the entire state. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I am a 1990 graduate of the College of Veterinary Medicine at OSU. I spent almost the first 25 years of my career in private practice. The majority of that I spent in my own business in the uh, Ada area. I was a mixed animal practitioner. Uh, my particular practice was about 70%, 30% large animal to small, with most of my large animal work being um, cow-calf work. That's mainly what I did. So, um, And then in 2014, I went to work for the Cooperative Extension Service, and that's what I'm doing today. Yeah, we kept you busy since 2014, I think. Right. Dana, fun fact is Barry and I started Extension about the exact same time. I, I mean, you as well, but I remember oh. going to new employee orientation with Barry. That's it's right. interesting to think about. You got your, you finished vet school the same year I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Make me feel old, Trent. <laughs> but then we started in Extension at the exact same time. So, yeah, that's yeah. cool. I'm, that's always an experience going through orientation yeah. with everybody from all ages, all different mm. areas. And so that's really cool. So very great to have you on today. We're going to talk uh, about BBD and continue the series that we've had. Uh, we started with the last couple of weeks. Let's just jump right in. Barry, can you give me just a little summary of, of BBD, maybe some clinical signs or just kind of the general overview? Well, it's a terrible disease. The reality is the most common clinical sign that most cattle producers are going to see is nothing. Most cows that come in contact with the virus and have a, are infected with it, maybe have an elevated temperature, very short period of time, that's it. Uh, and probably you won't even notice they've ever been exposed to it. That's typical clinical signs of the, of the disease of a, what we've called an acute infection. The main thing about BBD is, is that it impacts the immune system. It just really hammers it and lowers immunity in animals. So it makes them susceptible to secondary infections. That's why you see it associated with uh, bovine respiratory disease. You'll see reproductive issues with it. And you will get actual cattle that will actually get sick, you know, have diarrhea and those types of things with it. Although those are probably more rare, uh, but that's, that's typically what you're going to see in cattle. So it is 
very similar to so many other diseases, right, Barry? All those things you said was a lot of what we deal with in the stalker cattle industry, uh, maybe not the re- reproductive disease part, portion of it, but um, very common. And so a producer may not even realize. Exactly. Like I said, you, you, you're not going to tell an animal has got bovine bar diarrhea uh, infection just by looking at it, doing a physical exam or evaluating that animal that we're not going to diagnose it that way. We may suspect it, but we're going to have to do some testing if we're going to figure out that's what they've got. Okay. So one of the things we talked a little bit about in our last couple of segments is the persistently infected portion of that disease. Um, how is that portion of the disease created or what, how does that come about? Wow. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing about this disease. And, and what's happening is a, a cow that is pregnant, and you'll see varying numbers on this, but I'm going to say 60 to 120, 25 days pregnant. If she gets infected with the virus during that period of time, there is a possibility that that fetus will be infected with that virus. And this is before the immune status of the of that fetus begins to function. And so that virus just becomes a normal inhabitant of that fetus. It is just part of its system, never recognizes it as foreign. And so if that calf does live, if that fetus lives to be born, when it's born, it will be persistently infected with the virus. And the thing about persistently infected calves or cattle is that they shed in large numbers the virus on a constant basis. They'll continually shed that as long as they live and continually infect other animals. So the other way that you can get a calf that's persistently infected, if you have a persistently infected cow that gets pregnant and has a calf, she will have a persistently infected calf. So you either get infected that 60 to 120 days pregnancy cow gets infected then she gives birth to persistently infected calf or you have a persistently infected cow that gives birth to a persistently infected calf now i've never really heard it described that way barry because i you know only recently been you know looking into all this but that really is an amazing occurrence amazing yeah. horrible amazing yeah. horrible <laughs> But I mean, I never thought of it as a replacement kind of as a normal inhabitor of an immune system. And that, I guess I didn't know anything about that, how that occurred. Yeah. Yeah. That's before the calves, even the fetus, once it gets a certain age, certain days past, the immune system will begin to recognize any foreign, whatever that be a virus, whatever that invades it, it will recognize it as foreign and begin to respond to it. But up to early on, it can't, that immune system doesn't function. So that's how, if it gets in that time period, it's just there and the body accepts it as it's supposed to be there. Okay. So what happens to those calves whose mothers are infected before that time or after that 125 days? Give us a little bit of a rundown on that. Well, a cow that can be infected at any time, obviously during her, uh, as far as her pregnancy. And there is a possibility that any cow that's infected will abort at the time they're infected, no matter what time. 
Uh, obviously, if you're infected prior to that 60 day number or 45 days, most of those are going to be aborted or reabsorbed, whatever. You're not going to, those are not going to likely be carried to term. If you get infected that one part, there's a possibility that you'll go ahead and board that you will not carry that calf to term uh, during that 60 to 120 days. The other possibility is past that 120 days uh, and even during the 60 to 20, you may give birth to a calf that has some type of abnormality, malformation and stuff. A lot of those are associated with neuro, with the neurological system. So uh, that you'll see these calves born that can't walk, can't stand, those types of things. So, so there's a, quite a gamut of what can happen. And the crazy thing is you get infected after 120, you may just have a normal calf and everything's okay. Yeah. Still a possibility. Such a variety of situations. Well, I'm, I'm wondering what happens whenever one of those calves gets vaccinated? Does it just ignore the, the vaccine? Right. They're not going to respond, right? They're not, the persistently you, infected calves. Yeah, right? you're talking about okay. PI calves, yeah. right? There's not going to be... It's not going to make a difference to them <laughs> what happens there. Yeah. So once a cow is infected, what's kind of the cycle there? I mean, once she, you know, gets the disease or gets the virus and then say she recovers, I mean, how yeah. long does she have immunity or right. what, how's that go? Right. If a cow gets infected, they're probably going to be in a couple of weeks or so. They're probably going to have an have that immune response to that virus at, as long as they didn't succumb to it, you know, it, and and you have to remember these viruses that there's there's so many as far as viruses are concerned. There's different ones that are a lot more virulent, as we would say, than others. They're not all the same. Okay, so there's okay. a lot of different strains of BVD out there, and some of them are what we'd call pretty hot, would make the cow sick. Some of them wouldn't. 14 days, they're going to clear the virus, they, you know, and have their immune response, and they're probably going to be fine, most okay. likely. So then we encourage producers to vaccinate for this, right? Give us a little right. rundown on your recommendations <laughs> as far as a vet from a vaccination standpoint. There's a lot of a lot of moving right. parts with the vaccine. Right. There's a lot of opinions on the vaccine, too. Uh, and, and if you talk to a veterinarian, you're probably going to get a lot of different as far as opinions on what they think is best. You know, we basically have two types of vaccine for this virus. You have a killed vaccine and you have the modified live. Both have shown to provide good immunity. There is no doubt that there are some opinions out there that the modified live virus is the better vaccine to use. Uh, and in general, when we think about modified live, we do think they provide better immunity for diseases when we use a modified live vaccine because it stimulates the whole immune system, not just part of it. Whereas mm -hmm. the kill virus will only stimulate uh, the certain parts of the immune system. So you don't get that that complete immunity that you'd like to see. So I would suggest if at all possible that it, at the very least that you give to heifers that you're going to keep back for replacements that you get two doses of a modified live vaccine in them before they get bred. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would recommend that. Uh, beyond that, I'm not stupid. 
I was in practice for a long time. It gets kind of tough sometimes to use those modified live vaccines when you got cattle that are pregnant, cattle mm -hmm. that are calving and getting into that real small window to get them vaccinated before you're going to turn the bull in. So I know it gets tough. Mm -hmm. And there are some studies. I know Auburn did some studies about using the modified live and heifers and then coming back with killed vaccines uh, from then on in the herd. And, and they found that it worked real well. So have a conversation with your veterinarian about vaccines and, and pick out what's best for your situation. Yeah, Barry, of course, I'd put you in a hard spot there <laughs> answering for all veterinarians, but we would encourage all listeners to go and talk to their local veterinarian for you know, everybody's situation is different. Every herd exactly. is different, but the, that aspect of that research for heifers, you shouldn't have to worry about right. a pregnant. You're not gonna have to worry about a pregnancy or anything like that at that right. time, or we would hope not. And so there should be really not too many reasons not to really consider that and give that animal a good boost early on in their life. Right. Um, so let's kind of roll it back here and talk about the PI testing, Barry, have you done some of that? I assume in your practice. I did or when I was in practice and, and usually it was, I never uh, did much for diagnostics as much as we did it. People were selling cattle, mm -hmm. had to have a negative uh, test in order to get, get a cow or bull sold or something like that. So did it a lot more for, for the, purpose of getting an animal sold than uh, really diagnosing something that was sick. There's lots of different tests. I, if you talk to the experts, of course, they'll tell you, you really need to have two positive tests before you would consider an animal persistently infected. And, and that's because some of the tests, they will be positive because you can have that, what we refer to that transient infection, where you just you just got in, you know, the animal just come in contact with the virus, got infected, a couple weeks later or so clears the virus, uh, and now is no longer infected with the virus. So it's really good to get two tests, about three weeks apart at least. And if you have two positive tests, that lets you know, hey, we've got a, a persistently infected animal here. Okay, what does that process entail? Walk us through that. Well, there's lots of different tests out there. Okay, well, that's uh, okay. true. I'm sorry. Right, there's, there's, okay. there's the blood test that you can run, uh, which will technically hear the ELISA test, and then you got the PCR test, the immunohistochemistry test. So we got all these different tests, so, but you can pull blood, run a test. We can, the virus can be found on the skin. So we can do, a lot of people know about the ear notch. We can take a notch uh, out of the ear and get that skin and send it in and they can run tests on that to get you uh, to test it. So all those are good tests. They're all good tests. They All of them have shortcomings. All of them have positives. I'm not an expert on testing, but you kind of have to decide what's in the best interest of what's going to be the simplest thing that you can do for, for you. I'll be honest, most of the testing that I did was uh, the skin, taking a, mm -hmm. uh, an ear notch and doing that because most of the time that was what was required by wherever my clients were selling their animals. That's what they wanted. So that's what I used. But there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of different tests that can be used. Now, Trent, didn't you have, was it a tissue sample? Is that what you did? Yes, we did the ear notch. Okay. Yeah. But you got a bunch of ear notch cattle then. So. Yeah. 
it's easy yeah. to recognize which ones have been tested, I guess, from that standpoint. Yeah. yeah and, and when I was in practice, that was one of the drawbacks that a lot of people didn't like about the ear notch is ear notch calf. And then you put him through the cell ring at the local cell barn and nobody wants to buy him because they have this fear. You're trying to sell a persistently infected calf. So can get kind of sticky in those situations uh, with mm -hmm. owners. And I, and I understand, you know, that there's no reason to dock somebody because they got a notch in their ear. That's not right. But well, we ear notch pigs all the time. Right, I know Mary? that's right. Isn't the <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, when I was out, uh, hiking in Utah, they do a lot of identification on ear notches and cows and mm -hmm. the cows, they just looked, they had like bat winged ears. They were <laughs> not so much. I don't know what all those are for. It must've been a specific look for the particular ranch we were at, but yeah. I do know that there is just a lot of controversy as far as, you know, figuring out, you know, this persistent infection, but it's, it's very common whether producers want to believe it or not. Um, right. BVD is everywhere. Right. Yeah. It's in, and it's not just in cattle. I mean, there's, there's other ruminants that we find it in. Uh, I'm just reading an article today about white-tailed deer that they found, you know, it's in white-tailed deer. They've, they've been able to find it at times in them. So it's a, it's quite the bad virus. That's all I can say. <laughs> Yeah. So does it, will it adapt from one, you know, white tail deer, would it, could they transfer it from cows to deer? Is that possible or does it exist in that species? It, it, experimentally, they've done it. I will say that. Okay. Okay. I don't know if it happens in the real world. It, I, I'm going to assume it does because they have found it in deer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to assume that it does, but they have seen it in a laboratory. They've been able to take a persistently infected calf and run him around deer. And then the deer are found to be positive with the virus. Okay. Very, I don't know what the word is, adaptable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that yeah. what it is? Yeah. Um, so let's think about a realistic situation for an Oklahoma producer, small producer with 50 cows. How, how would they get it? And what would be the impact of maybe a, an infection in those cows? Well, probably the way that it, you get it is you bring it home with you from the mm -hmm. cell barn or someplace purchasing animals somewhere um, is probably going to be the most likely way to, to get it home. It can be found in uh, bull semen. So, you know, you in theory, you could get it from if you're AI and, but most of those net, you know, they've got their rules and regulations. If you're buying from a reputable uh, semen supplier, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, but uh, that's probably the way you're going to, the other way you're going to get it. If you've got a bunch of, uh, let's say you've got your cows, you've got them all bred. You're in that 60 to 120 day window and your neighbor next door, uh, has it or he you know buys a bunch of stalkers and brings them mm -hmm. in and they're up against the fence next to your cattle and you have that because this virus is if if the cow's got a fluid it's in it 
Mm-hmm. Just, just remember that okay. <laughs> whatever fluids are coming out of that cow's body, that virus will be in it. So, uh, and that would be another way that you'd get it. Then you get those, those fetuses infected with the virus and you stand the chance of getting some persistently infected calves born. So that'd probably be the most likely ways that I would see most producers would, would get the virus. So very common. It can be very easily gotten, especially, uh, in well we'll just say northwest oklahoma everybody's got a soccer calves down the road Mm. or across the fence from them right it's a very common thing unless they're pi tested i mean that's right be an issue right um so very common so what could be the impact of that so say we got we got bbd through the fence those cows maybe are impacted you know affected during that that time period uh of PI calf, one or two PI calves is, is produced. Um, then where do we go from there? Yeah. Yeah. The problem will be figuring out that you've got it in the first place, you know, before you might have a lot of, of, to me, it may take you a year or so before you figure out we got an issue here probably have poor performing calves that are born. You got to persistently infect those that aren't are getting slugged with the virus all the time. So they may not perform as well as they should grow as well as they should. Uh, then you've got that p- persistent infected calf in your herd. So now as you breed your cows, they're always getting exposed to it. So it sets them up for having problems with more calves being born. So all of these just compounding each other. Um, of course, if you've got a good vaccination program going along with this, you're sure going to have less issues compared to somebody that doesn't, but Mm -hmm. still it's going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, like you said before, the vaccine isn't going to take care of that PI calf. So hopefully you get rid of them before (laughs) get him out of the herd before you have, you know, another round of issues. Um, As far as, you know, preventing, bbd from in your herd so you talked about all these things so can we summarize kind of how we would prevent what's the what's the main things you would say well these are not my ideas these are definitely the people that know a lot more about it it's basically there's there's three things we can do one is surveillance make sure we keep a good eye on our cattle and if we have any suspicions get those cattle tested right so we're, we're just constantly vigilant and making sure our herd is kept free. Second is biosecurity. If we can maintain a closed herd, we should. If we can't, you know, any animal brought into the herd needs to be tested before you let it have any contact with any of the cattle in your herd. And it should be isolated for at least three to four weeks and make sure it doesn't have any sickness or illnesses. During that time, you should make sure and get that animal vaccinated the way you want it vaccinated, you know, so it complies with what your standards are for your own herd. You have to also remember that if you bring in pregnant cows, those calves are going to be, you really need to keep those cows separated from the rest of the herd till those calves hit the ground and then get those calves tested and make sure they're negative before you let them have contact with the rest of the herd. Because we don't know what the status of that fetus is until it hits the ground and we can get it tested. So that's really an important one there. And if you get a positive PI calf, we got to make sure we test mom and make sure she's not one of those rare PI cows that's given birth to PI calves. So you get a negative calf, 
you don't have to worry about mom being persistently infected, but you get a PI calf, make sure you get that cow tested. And lastly, vaccines. Vaccines are, you know, trying to make sure we maintain a good vaccination program to try to do our best to protect that herd. So those are the three things that we recommend as far as, as again, I, I'm not the one that came up with that. That's the experts that came up with that. So and and so those vaccines they they do double duty or triple duty because they cover a lot of other things too, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, most of us I think are very aware that most of the vaccines we use that for cattle are going to have that four you know as far as the four viruses which are our main problems in cattle the IBR, BVD, PI three, and BRSV. So, and adult cattle, we're mainly concerned about IBR and BVD in that, that, that portion of the vaccine. Okay. Well, fantastic summary, Barry. I've had, I read an article this morning, just trying to prepare for this. And it said only, it only takes one animal with BVD or one persistently infected animal to negatively impact years of investment or (laughs) just, you know, your first investment. Right. So, so important to think about, or at least talk about to your veterinarian. I'm going to put a plug for all Oklahoma veterinarians, talk to your vet, and I'm sure that they would be happy to help you through something like this, start a vaccine program. Or if you, if you suspect that maybe you have something going on, talk to them, see what they think. And I really appreciate Barry coming on to kind of give us a little consult on some of this. If you have any more questions as far as this goes, contact your local county extension educator. We'll have some resources in the show notes. And Barry, he's one of our extension educators too, just like all the rest of us. So you can contact him or contact us or your local person. Really appreciate you all tuning in today. We'll catch you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.